Bring a Sweater, Lady and Elena's Archival Research Adventure. A podcast series about spending our summer with 17th and 18th century documents. What is up, guys? Lady here, and this time I am flying solo, but just for a little bit. Don't worry, Elena will be back. She's actually sitting right next to me. But um, it's just going to be me for now, which I hope that's okay with you guys. Um, so I guess we're going to try to change things up a little bit and try to uh, talk about our personal experience with these documents. So, you know, we've been talking about us, you know, going through all these documents for whatever amount of weeks that we've been here. And we talk about the relationships we have with these documents. And, you know, we have favorites and we have least favorites. So we're going to be... Uh, talking about our favorites, um, me personally, I'm going to be talking about my top two. So, um, yeah, so I guess we can just go straight into it. Um, you know, as you flip through, uh, we've also been trying to find the, you know, the words that stick out to us, um, you know, because usually looking through court orders and looking through deeds and wills it gets pretty rep- uh, repetitive, the language. So, when you see a word that stands out to you or something that's a little different or that looks a little interesting, you you gain, you know, you gain attention and um, or it gains your attention. So uh, this one is from uh, Deeds and Wills uh, from a transcription of uh, of the Deeds and Wills book for Westmoreland County. Uh, the date is February 3, 1672 slash three. And that's a whole dating thing of the years that they had back then, but we won't go into that. So also uh, for this, um, excuse my profanity, mom, or who else, whoever else is, you know, not proud of this, but these aren't my words. And these are the words of the uh, whoever is in this case from February 3, 1672 slash three. So this was a deposition of Jonathan Towers, aged 29 years or thereabouts, so they're not really sure, say, said that Dorothy Veal called Mrs. Eleanor Quigley Irish whore, an Irish bitch, an Irish witch, Irish witch, an Irish hag, an Irish bod, and if I had you here, I would stamp you under my feet. Close quote. And, um... When I saw that, I was just like, oh, my gosh, like these people in, you know, in the 17th century, they were like they were shady and they were rude and they would say these words to each other. And then it was written down in court and they were kind of like tattletailed on by Jonathan Towers. And it's just like, dang, Jonathan, like, dang, like this is between, you know, Dorothy Veal and Mrs. Eleanor Quigley. But it really goes to show that these were the kinds of interactions that people had, the kind of prejudice that, you know, roots so far back and, you know, still shows itself today. Um, And, you know, towards Irish people or towards, you know, Catholics, which is, you know, how Catholics were not a a favorite group of people back then. So um, just to see this interaction in a court book, Um, was really interesting for me and I even put it on my Instagram story to share with everybody to kind of show people like this is how it was back then and this is how we talk to each other. Uh, 
Another interesting case that I came across uh, was in our Westmoreland County order book, uh, 1731 to 1739, page 63. Um, and this actually was the only case that day. And I think it was on uh, the 29th day of January in 1732. So basically, uh, it was a royal court case, meaning that somebody violated royal law. Um, and this one in particular was really interesting to me. Um, and I'm going to do my best to read it to you guys or try to give you some of the highlights. So basically, John Crabb, uh, the person accused, he went out uh, hunting with his friend. Um, I think it was uh, Charna Cox, um, husband of Elizabeth Cox. And so they went out hunting and the said crab thought after or shot after and anyways he caught a deer <laughs> and um so they came home at night um and they came home the said cox and without loading his gun felt it behind the door of the said cox's house where afterwards unknown to to cox to said cox um basically they had two guns. One was loaded and one was not loaded. So, you know, they're coming into the house. So they put the guns behind the door. When they came into the house, there was uh, an enslaved girl sleeping by the fireplace. And, um, and you know, they're, I guess, just hanging out in the room. Elizabeth Cox is also in the room. And um, as a joke, um, Mr. Cox here thought it was f thought it would be funny to, you know, pull a... a, a quote-unquote joke on the poor enslaved girl um, by waking her up but in not a very gentle way as some would think um, he actually used a musket that um, was uh, that was to be flashed or primed um, which created a huge smoke a huge spark and that was meant to wake up the the enslaved girl uh, they wanted to put it right next to her ear um, which you know is absolutely horrible um and uh it would end up burning her hair and definitely um deafening her probably in whatever ear they shot by so when um so cox was the one that told crab to grab the gun from from the door and um he crab thought he was grabbing the unloaded one um so when he would flash it, it was just supposed to flash and not do anything else. So when Crab went to flash the, the musket next to the enslaved girl's ear, um, it ended up shooting Elizabeth Cox and killing her. Um, and, you know, it was just like, it was just a prank, bro. But at the same time, uh, you, just, you just killed his wife. So it was that, that was a case um, that ended up being taken to um, a higher court uh, because usually when someone dies the the county court doesn't really want to deal with it right so um, uh, it was ended up taken from uh, from Westmoreland County and into uh, Williamsburg and um, you know it doesn't really after that it doesn't really say anything about what happened to the enslaved girl uh, after that it doesn't really say about I th I'm pretty sure Cox or Crab or both had to pay a fine um, of uh, in the sum of 100 pounds. Um, 
and you know they don't really say anything what happens to the enslaved girl but most likely she her hair was burned and her her ear like ability was just she was deaf after that um most likely considering what happened and just you know you think about um just the the way that that you know that um the enslaved were treated back then um obviously but also in a way where it's just like they were just totally disregarded and um and you know you don't really hear about whatever happened to the girl or uh you i later in later cases cox did come up and i thought it was going to be about this case but he was just in trouble for selling the wrong kind of tobacco and you would think you know that a fine would not be enough punishment for that but that's how it was then and um yeah and i think that was really interesting for me to see um one the thought process that these people had back then in the way that they treated their enslaved and how they thought it was a joke and how they thought it was funny and how it really wasn't and it also just showed like how not important the enslaved people were and how they really were just looked to as you know uh, a punchline or just a piece of property to like have fun with and that's entirely wrong and incorrect so yeah i guess that's my take on that one Hello everyone, it's me, Elena, and I'm going to read you my favorite case and talk about another one. Um, and for those of you who know me, it won't come as a surprise that this is my favorite case that I came across. But for those of you who don't know me, I think witches are really cool. <laughs> and so when I came across this case, I was super excited. Um, it was, I actually came across it when um, Lady and I were in the Fredericksburg Library um, going through the, the transcriptions that are available there. So it was easier to read and much easier to see that, oh, there's the word witch. And so um, this case has a couple pages, but I'm just going to read to you um, my favorite part, um, which it took place in 1695. And it says, quote, Henry Duncan and Dorothy, his wife, were summoned to answer John Duncan and Eliza, his wife, in an action of defamation. John and Eliza, by Simon Robbins, their attorney, say that John and Eliza were both born and bred in this county and ever since have lived in this country. Henry and Dorothy damnably plotting a most wicked, contriving utterly to ruin the good names, fames, and reputation of John and Eliza, their children, um, oh, I guess, like, and their children, um, Dorothy, about the beginning of July last at the house of Calpen of the plantation of Henry, in the presence and hearing of several of his majesty's liege subjects, did declare of Elizabeth these words, Elizabeth, John Duncan's wife, is a witch and has bewitched her cow and that she stink of hellfire and brimstone and that she made the birds of the air fall by her witchcraft and said to her husband Henry, be ruled by me and draw some of the blood of that witch, meaning Eliza, who had bewitched her cow. And sometime after, at the same cowpen, did utter to Elizabeth damnable, wicked, and scandalous words, and bade her go down to 
Yakomo? Wakamako, <laughs> sorry, that one's hard. Um, to the witch, her mother. Um, so she's like, this woman's really saying some bad stuff about her. And it says, um, um, it says, uh, which most horrible and damnable facts and crimes were the set Eliza really guilty of as they are charged upon her by Dorothy should make her liable to no less punishment than burning to death by the laws of England. So she's saying all this stuff, like knowing that it can get this woman killed. Um, and so it goes on to say that the husband is also saying these things and that he would prove her a witch and at several other times and places um henry and dorothy the people who are accusing as apt instruments of the devil have horribly defamed and maliciously scandalized eliza or elizabeth um calling her a witch and her children witches imps seldom or never calling them by any other names when they spoke about them and threatening to burn down their plantation. So this is like, this is a really crazy case with a lot of people testifying on both sides. And in the end, um, Elizabeth and John are asking for 40,000 pounds of tobacco for their, their, like the damages and the, the scandalous words that have been, you know, said against them. Um, and that's, a, that's an insane amount of tobacco um you know throughout these cases we're seeing people you know being fined 100 pounds or 50 pounds for you know different crimes or you know debts that they owe so to say 40,000 pounds I've never seen a debt that large and so (laughs) the jury goes and deliberates and when they come back they find that the defendants need to pay John and Elizabeth 10 pounds of tobacco so that's kind of embarrassing for them that's like a judge judy moment where someone's asking for you know a house and a car and they get like i don't know a pencil or something it's like that's that's really embarrassing so i just i thought it was really funny and and it's actually it wasn't until i was just looking over this case again did i actually understand what really happened because i was really confused before because there's a lot of players in this case and it just kind of goes back and forth but that one was really interesting and and one of the most interesting things about it so this happened in 1695 like i mentioned and on like during the first week that we were in westmoreland uh dr levy was going through one of the order books and he found that the county had ordered uh, a ducking stool which for those of you who don't know is um like for witches and stuff if they found if they were like trying to figure out if you were a witch they would they had this contraption that was like basically like a long post that had a seat at the end of it and they would tie you to the end of the seat and like dunk you in like a pond or a river or lake um and like kind of like torture you to see if you were a witch and so they in um in 1697 um it was ordered that ducking stools um needed to be made um i think it said like as at earliest convenience um for three parishes including washington parish which is um like what we've been dealing with a lot and that it would be made by lawrence washington so 
it directly connects to you know the people that we've been studying and it's only two years after this this witch case and so you know it's it's not unfair to say that there could be a correlation there that they were you know worried about witches in the vicinity and that they you know wanted to be prepared so it's just it's really really interesting obviously you know they didn't burn her they didn't nothing really came of it it was it was a defamation case but you know that people are out there making these claims it just shows you know I know a lot of people know about like you know Salem and stuff it just shows like if you didn't like somebody it's really easy to make a claim about them and get them in trouble so it that was my favorite case so far Okay, so another case that I found really interesting, um, it's not, it's not a favorite because it's really grim, um, but it's a really good example of just how things worked in this period. Um, it happened in August of 1740 and an enslaved man named Matthew was, um, brought up to the court. Um, it's like, technically it's against the king because he broke the king's law. And he is brought up to court for having being accused of stealing two gold rings. And the book that I was the order book that I was reading from the the book is relatively small for the books that we've been working with. And the handwriting was really hard to read. So it took me a long time to kind of figure out what was exactly was going on in this case. Um, but it kept saying two gold rings, two gold rings. So he was up for um being accused of stealing two gold rings and so they had him testify and matthew said that he got them from a ship in the potomac which is not unlikely um in the you know the 18th century um and before and even after the everything was kind of situated around water because everyone is trading things are being shipped to to you know the the mother country and you know from other places so it you know it's not unlikely that he came into contact with some sort of sailor and, and you know could have won these somehow or you know traded for them so his story is you know pretty plausible so he says he got them from a sailor in the potomac so the next day they have another enslaved man named Hanover and he comes um, to testify against Matthew saying that um, Matthew went up to the dwelling house of um, a man named Steptoe like his plantation and went inside and then when he emerged from the dwelling house he had two gold rings and offered one of them to Hanover um, which is a lot more unlikely <laughs> because they that's that's a suicide mission. They know if you, you know, at this time, if, if you have something that your class of people is not supposed to have, it's going to be noticed. Um, so there's no reason that he would do that, like, realistically. But, of course, the court, you know, takes Hanover's word for it. And, you know, at the end of some of, you know, some of these more extreme cases, especially involving the enslaved, um, you'll read, uh, be taken to, um, hang from the neck until dead and may Lord have mercy on their soul. So they ended up, um, hanging Matthew for this offense. And, you know, it's, it's such a stark contrast to 
other things that we see in these order books, especially things that involve white people. Um, you know, we came across another case where, you know, someone was called a notorious thief and they were fined. They didn't, they were not hung, you know, even ladies case where, um, where someone killed someone, you know, no one's hung there or, you know, at least they're sending it up to a a higher court, you know, to, to get more word on it. And when it comes to these enslaved people, we've seen it quite a few times now where that, you know, they're, uh, it's, you know, I guess it's kind of stupid to say this phrase because it is an actual court, but they're, they're playing judge and jury and they're deciding right then and there, nope, we're going to kill them. So it's just, you know, obviously like, you know, as historians, and I think just most American people would agree, like, we know that these things went on, um, you know, that obviously Africans, and you know the enslaved people were not treated with respect not treated with dignity and obviously not given fair opportunities especially in in legal situations but it's just really it's quite upsetting to see you know again like i said someone being called a notorious thief and getting off with a fine and this man having a completely plausible explanation for how he obtained these rings and they just kill him and there's just no there's no there's like no checks and balances there's no sort of way to to police this in any way so i don't know it's just it's really it's been interesting to you know see how these things play out and see how the law really just benefited certain people and and really marginalized others this podcast was produced by me philip levy with special thanks to the George Washington Birthplace National Monument, the National Park Service, the Organization of American Historians, the University of South Florida, and the University of Mary Washington.